I appreciate the congregation asking me to come and present a series of lessons. It's been several years since I uh, did a gospel meeting, I think maybe three or, three or three and a half, something like that. And uh, I, I wish I could do more gospel meetings, but I have to work a second job. And uh, so I, I enjoy from time to time being able to, to go to another place to meet new brethren, uh, to renew old uh, acquaintances, and, uh, and present the, uh, the Bible, the truth of God's Word, uh, again to, to people that, as a, as a collective group, I have it, have it done. I enjoyed the Bible class this morning. I always get a, a, a joy out of other people's teaching. I, uh, I, learned, I learned from Andrew this morning, and uh, so uh, I, I do enjoy sitting in on, on other people's classes. I don't get to go to gospel meetings like I would like in Georgia. The churches aren't all, aren't all even meeting. We went through February without having a congregational meeting. I was live streaming lessons for for the brethren, and uh, so it's it's good to get out again and to to be able to to preach to a live congregation uh, and uh, and and share these thoughts with you. This morning, I want to do an overview of of the Bible. I believe that a lot of people just do not have a grasp of what the Bible is all about. They 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 read. I've talked to people who said, "Oh, I really love the Psalms." And, and they, they read the Psalms and they'll read them again. And they, they really enjoy the Psalms, but they don't really study the history. Uh, they don't like all those genealogies and they, they don't like all that tedious history and uh, things of that nature. And, and if they study it all, they study for the purpose of, of reinforcing the doctrine that they've already, they've already heard. And, and I think a lot of times, especially among denominations, the the preachers obviously don't have a grasp of the of what the Bible is about, uh, or they wouldn't be teaching false doctrine. They wouldn't be perpetuating an unauthorized religious organization as they do by their by their preaching. But I think oftentimes, also brethren kind of kind of miss it a little bit, and uh, maybe because. Uh, well, I won't. I won't uh, offer a reason for that because I don't know. There are probably other uh, many reasons for that. But I want to do that this morning and try to put things into perspective for those who might not have as good a perspective as they would like on the Bible. We're going to start with uh, Titus chapter one. Uh, now that's the smallest font I believe I'll be using this week. So if any in the back having trouble reading that, I apologize. Uh, I'm reading from, I'm using the ESV this morning, not because I think it's the best translation. All the translations have their pluses and their minuses. But I, I like the English Standard Version all, all right. Uh, there are places where I prefer the New King James. I really miss the these and thous of the Old King James. Uh, but uh, And there are other things about the, the King James that I think are, are pluses. Uh, for example, the distinction between first and second uh, person in the uh, or, or plural and singular of the first, of the second person pronoun you and thee. I think those distinctions are important sometimes that, that are, are are missed in some of the later translations. 
But we're going to start in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where Paul, writing to a young evangelist on the, I believe, the Isle of Crete, said, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. I want to call your attention to that. Before the ages began, this means before the beginning, because the ages began at the beginning. Before he created anything, he promised eternal life. Now you might ask, well, to whom did he promise eternal life? That was before he created anything, much less man. It's possible the angels were already created. He created the angels before he created the heavens and the earth. There's some attention, very little uh, given to that in the Bible. But he promised eternal life before the ages began. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul writing to another young evangelist, the second epistle that he wrote to Timothy, probably the last of Paul's inspired epistles that have uh, survived the first century, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so to whom did he promise eternal life? He promised eternal life to us, but he promised it to us in Christ Jesus. It was, it's like a trust. Uh, a, a, a man wants to provide for his children, and so he, he writes a will. His children are not of age, and he, he just in case he dies before they become of, of, of age, before they come, become adults, uh, he doesn't want them to come into his fortune uh, at an age when they're unable to, to make wise decisions, so he puts that money in trust. And when they turn 21 or whatever uh, designation he puts on that, uh, as far as age is concerned, then they receive that money from that, from that trust. And so God put eternal life in trust in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And of course, we know and understand, and, and we talked a little bit about it this, this morning in the Bible class, Jesus, as a member of the Godhead, existed before the world began. He wasn't called Jesus until he was born of Mary. He was the Word of God and uh, a member of the Godhead. And so here is one person of the Godhead who is later identified as the Father, put eternal life in trust for believers in his Son, the Word of God, who was later identified as Jesus Christ the Son of God. And he did this again before the ages began. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8 beginning, Paul writes to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace, the grace of God, some translations say this dispensation, was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Keep in mind that the Apostle Paul, though he was not the only one, he was an apostle to the Gentiles. 
Though Paul was a Jew, he was a Roman citizen. He would have more freedom of movement throughout the Roman Empire. He would be more familiar with the customs of people in a variety of places throughout the Roman Empire. And he was the ideal man uh, for God to choose to take the gospel to the far reaches of the Roman Empire. Every place he went, he went to the Jews first and preached to them as long as they would receive the word. But eventually he would move on and and start preaching to the Gentiles in that area. And so certainly Peter was the first one to preach to Gentiles when he preached in the home of Cornelius as revealed in Acts chapter 10. Uh, But uh, it was Paul that took the gospel to the Gentiles in general. And so... But the Jewish idea, we talked a little bit about this in class, the Jews' concept of the kingdom was that it was a Jewish kingdom, a geopolitical kingdom that Messiah was going to build or establish when he came. And that it was exclusive to the Jews. Even after it was clear that it was a spiritual kingdom. This seems to have been made clear in Acts chapter 2 in the preaching of Peter. It still escaped the apostles, it seems, that the Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles. Now, proselytes had the gospel preached to them on Pentecost. Gentiles who had become Jews by choice. But no uncircumcised Gentile had heard the gospel until God, through an angel, sent for Peter, or told Cornelius to send for Peter, and Peter comes down and preaches the gospel to uncircumcised Gentiles. But it was Paul, again, that took the gospel into the Gentile world, the world of the Gentiles, that is the Roman Empire, outside the confines of the land of Israel. Now, this plan, Paul says, was for ages hidden in God who created all things. This was always God's purpose to establish a spiritual kingdom of all people, Jews, Gentiles alike. This was hinted at in the prophets. Isaiah talked about it in Isaiah chapter 2. And uh, there are other places that that talked about that. But very little attention is given to it in in the Old Testament. And all of these bits of information was over the heads of the, excuse me, (coughs) over the heads of the Jews. And so even the apostles didn't get that uh, during the ministry of Jesus. And it took them a while to get it after Jesus went back to heaven and sent the the Holy Spirit. But it was always God's plan. It was hidden by God in the Old Testament but revealed in the gospel, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. His manifold wisdom, his multifaceted wisdom. I don't know that I've got that on this particular uh, slide presentation, but in in First Peter, I believe, chapter two, Peter talks about how that the prophets didn't even know what they were talking about, and uh, but it was revealed to them or through them 
that this is basically what God was going to do. But even the prophets, even Isaiah didn't know what he was talking about. How could the Ethiopian eunuch know and understand Isaiah chapter 52? If Isaiah didn't understand Isaiah chapter 52. And so there are several passages in Paul's writing where he seems to show uh, knowledge of the wisdom of Solomon. And this is one of them. The heart of the present passage in, is verse 10, which is one of the New Testament's most powerful statements of the reason for the church's existence. And again, it is according to the eternal purpose of God. And so uh, that he made known, and it was made known to the rulers and authorities uh, in the heavenly places, the spiritual leaders. And so, and Peter, by the way, he also mentioned that not only did the prophets not understand, but the angels desired to look into those things. So I kind of picture from that, that down through the ages, as God was inspiring his apostles to write these things, I can almost see the angels looking over God's shoulders and, and scratching their heads. You know, what's, what's going on? What's all this about? And then the church is established and the angel said, ah, now I see the wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God. He said, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And so it's purposed before the ages began in eternity past, and it has been realized in Christ Jesus in time, and it will continue to exist after time is done. When those who have embraced the faith and have been faithful unto death receive the crown of life and are in heaven with God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and all other righteous people uh, forever. Here's the verse I was referring to. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 beginning. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, Isaiah 52 is about the sufferings of Christ. This is the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when Philip the evangelist joined his chariot. And Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I except some man guide me? And Peter didn't even understand. I mean, Isaiah didn't even understand. He goes on to say, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The angels wanted to understand. And finally they did. When the church was established, they could, everything fell into place for the angels. Now they understood what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 52 the suffering, the suffering servant. Now they understood what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah chapter 2, uh, the, the mountain of the Lord's house and all people going into it. So things began to fall into place. Now back in Genesis chapter 3, I'm finally going to the beginning uh, on answering religious error. Gary says he's seen that. Maybe some of you have seen that also on uh, our face, Facebook page and on the YouTube, they call me Genesis. That's behind the scenes. I'm always seem to be going back to Genesis. Well, that's where it all began. 
In Genesis 3.15, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, while the word offspring can be used in the plural and in the collective sense, it can also be used in the singular sense. Here, there is a twofold uh, use of it. Her offspring is singular. We know that because it says, He, her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking to the serpent, who I'm confident we all understand that in some way was the devil in disguise. And uh, so he's going to create enmity between the, the serpent and the woman, and between his seed and her seed. And so uh, enmity is the opposite of amity. It is the opposite of friendship. Adam and Eve were friends with God in the garden until Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and gave to her husband with her and he ate. They were now at enmity with God and in amity, friendship with the serpent. But God is going to create enmity between the serpent and the woman and between his seed, and her seed. In chapter 17 and verse 7, speaking to, God, to Abraham, God said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the, their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, this is plural use of the word offspring. But he's not talking about the physical offspring of Abraham. He's talking about his spiritual offspring. That's made clear in Romans chapter 4. And in Galatians chapter 3. I might look at Galatians chapter 3 uh, later this week at, at length. So God made a covenant with Abraham to bless all families and all nations in his seed or offspring. God made this covenant with Abraham at this time and with his offspring at a later time. Keep this in mind because we'll come back, we'll come back to that. Then Galatians chapter 3, we're going to look a little bit at Galatians here. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings. Now this is really referring to a different verse than Genesis chapter 17 verse 7, which I simply did not have in this, in this uh, presentation. Referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. And so there was a promise that was to Christ, the singular spiritual offspring of Abraham. And then he goes on and, and explains this. Then the Lord said to Abram, for, your cer for certain, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So God has promised this land to Abraham, but Abraham never owned it except for the cave of Machpelah that he bought in order to bury his wife Sarah when she died. And he said, your descendants, they're going to they're gonna go and be servants elsewhere, afflicted for 400 years. And I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Now Abraham lived 175 years. And, uh, and that was kind of a good old age. Uh, it wasn't nearly as old as Methuselah. But, 
uh, lifespan of men uh, began to decrease after the, after the flood. But he lived 175 years. Uh, after him came Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. God used Joseph. We'll talk a little bit more about Joseph here in a little bit. As a primary means of getting Israel uh, or, or getting the Israelites from Canaan to Egypt so they could increase their numbers without being influenced by the evil Amorites. Because God had said uh, back there, uh, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. I guess I didn't put that one in here. Going to be 400 years for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So when he calls Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, the iniquity of the Amorites is full. And they could have gone right into Israel, Canaan at that time, but it was 40 years because of the sins in the wilderness. So uh, there'll be sojourners, and then they'll come back. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So, what was God going to do? He was going to let the Amorites continue to get more and more evil until it was clear that he was justified in his dispossessing them of the land. The other nations apparently had gotten as evil as they were going to get. Their iniquity was full. The iniquity of the Amorites was not full. So he could not do it at that time. But in 400 years, he was going to do it. Their iniquity would be full by that time. Now in Genesis chapter 45, verse 4, moving on to Joseph. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. This is after Joseph has gone down to Egypt. He's been in jail, in prison. He's come out of prison. He's prophesied or interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh concerning the seven years of plenty, followed by the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh has put Joseph in charge of preparing the people during those seven years of plenty for the seven years of famine. And when the seven years of famine begin, I think in a, about two years into that, Jacob sends 10 of his other 11 sons, all except Benjamin, to Egypt. And of course, they have to deal with Joseph. So at least 17 years, or not at least 13 years have passed. Joseph is now a grown man. And they don't recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them because they were already grown men when he was 17. So he knows who they are, but they don't know who he is. And he keeps this from them. But here in Genesis 45, it has already been made known, Jacob has moved to Egypt. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. And I want us to understand that. Joseph was in Egypt. Yes, I know he was sold into bondage. But it was by the providence of God. It was through Joseph that the rest of Israel was moved over to Egypt. If he hadn't gone over there in bondage, Israelites would have, or the, the Israelites would have still been there in Canaan as the Amorites got worse and worse, and they would have been influenced by that. So God was removing them from that area 
while the Amorites' wickedness was increasing. And then one day he would be fully justified in dispossessing the Amorites as well as the other nations of that land and bring the people back. So Joseph understood what was going on. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Now, this is actually before Jacob comes over. But Joseph has revealed himself to them. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. They might have even been killed over there by the Amorites if they had stayed over in Canaan. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. They sold him into slavery. But again, that was by the providence of God. God. They did it, but God allowed that to happen. God did not overrule their ill will because God knew he would bring good out of that. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. This tells me that Joseph probably was a little older than Pharaoh. Uh, even at, uh, I think Joseph is 30 years old here. Pharaoh may have been uh, a good bit younger. A father to Pharaoh. And Lord of all, all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. In chapter 50, now this is after Jacob came back. After he has died. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. They're throwing themselves on his mercy. They think that he has uh, held back toward them because of the Jacob. Jacob is dead. They think, oh, he's going to let us have it now. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now in Deuteronomy 26 and verse 5, Moses said, You shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, that was Abraham. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. Now, Abraham as a person didn't go down to, to Egypt, but in his progeny, he went down to Egypt. And there they grew in number and became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. Now, they weren't officially a nation without a law, without a land, but they were a nation as far as their mass, their masses were concerned, as far as their number was concerned. Remember that the Egyptians would not have anything to do with the Israelites, and they gave them the land of Goshen and allowed them to keep, uh, keep cattle. The Egyptians didn't want anything to do with that. They didn't want anything to do with the Israelites. So they, they secluded them in the land of Goshen, but it was more, far more land than they needed at the time, but they grew to where they filled that land and became a great number of people. Some have suggested that probably two million people crossed the Red Sea with Moses on dry ground. In Genesis 49, verses 9 through 10, Judah, here is Jacob, just before he died, giving the future and fortunes of his 12 sons. Regarding Judah, he says, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so Jacob here predicts that Judah will be the royal tribe. Now when Israel first gets into Canaan, God does not give them a king. He gives them a system of judges. He knows one day he's going to give them a king. His intention is to give them a spiritual king in the form of his son. But he also knows all things. It was no surprise to him when they came to Samuel and said, we want, you know, we're getting tired of the system of judges. We want a king like the nations around us. And God gave them Saul, son of Kish. Saul, son of Kish, was a miserable failure. God replaced him with David, who was from the tribe of Judah. And so from then on, every authorized king in uh, Israel and Judah after the division was a descendant of David from the house of Judah. And of course, we know from Matthew chapter 1 that Joseph also was in the house of Judah, as was Mary from Luke chapter 3. And so Jesus, being the son of Mary, the adopted son or foster son, legal son of Joseph, was in line for the king to be king, son of David. And so this was always God's intention. And so Jacob predicted that there. Then 2 Samuel chapter 7, here is what Samuel says to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. Here again, offspring is used singularly. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. He's not talking about Solomon. Now, some have suggested, well, this is a double prophecy, Solomon and Jesus. Well, I can see that it may be that Solomon is going to be a typical prophecy, a prophetic type of Jesus. But he's talking about, about Jesus. In Matthew chapter 22, after he's had debates with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then a lawyer comes to him asking him which is the greatest commandment, and God says there's two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then here are these Pharisees that come, and they're still questioning among themselves, so Jesus asked them a question. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, Well, the son of David. They knew and understand that the Messiah, when he came, would be the son of David, would be the offspring of David, a descendant of David. Notice what Jesus then said. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, to call someone Lord was to refer to that person as, as a senior, as a, an, an elevation. You, you refer to your ancestors as Lord. Your father as Lord, your grandfather, Lord. It would be the equivalent. This second word is not the word for Yahweh. It is the word simply for sir. It's translated senor in the Espanol uh, translations. David would never call his descendant sir. 
unless there was some sense in which his descendant would be greater than he. So they couldn't figure that out. So he asked them a question they could not answer because they were thinking that the Messiah, when he came, would be a mere human being. But they were forgetting about this particular quotation here where David says, uh, <coughs> sit in my right hand and I'll put your enemies under your feet. And uh, But the, that the answer is, same as John the Baptist, when he said, he that cometh after me is before me. Because though Jesus was born six months after John the Baptist, and Jesus' ministry began about six months after John the Baptist was beheaded. So Jesus followed John the Baptist on the scene. Jesus predated John the Baptist because Jesus had always existed. So before he, he's coming after me, but he was before me. Jesus later said before Abraham was, I am. In Psalm 110 verse 1, here's the question, the quotation that Jesus is using. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, the first word is, is Yahweh, the tetragrammaton. Uh, sometimes use the four letters YHWH. These have been translated as Jehovah in some translations, as uh, Yahweh in other translations, and, uh, but always refers to, to God, one of the Godhead, or the Godhead as a collectivity. The Lord says to my Lord, my senior, my, my superior, sit in my right hand and I make your, until I make your enemies your footstool. And so they could not conceive of the son, a descendant of David, being referred to by David as sir. It just didn't make sense to them. But the only way it made sense is for Jesus to have been greater than he in that regard. Now, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, Micah writes, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, this was a nickname for Bethlehem of Judah, who are too little, insignificant, to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. You know, it's interesting that when the wise men came from the east to see the one who was born king of the Jews, they went to Herod, and, you know, this is news to Herod. He thought his son was going to be king of the Jews. And so he asked the wise men, what's this all about? And the wise men quote this verse. But the end of that was either over their head or, or maybe they skipped over that, but they did not conceive of the ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from of ancient days. And what does that mean if it does not mean that the Messiah would be an eternal being, a member of the Godhead come to earth in fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. In Matthew 2, verses 5 through 6, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are, my, are by no means last among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who, shall, who will shepherd my people Israel. And so there it is. 
But he, they, they leave out of the quotation whose goings forth from, are from old and from everlasting. And so they missed that. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, For then that, for then that it is, know then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now, when God made that promise to Abraham, he was preaching the gospel to Abraham. And so the blessing of the gospel is to be, uh, to be blessed in fable Abraham. In you shall all the nations be blessed. You know, some people say well, that means we better be careful how we treat the, the nation of Israel. It has nothing to do with the modern nation of Israel. The modern nation of Israel was established by proclamation. The original nation of Israel was established by God. And along with geopolitical Israel, as was mentioned in Bible class again this morning, there was spiritual Israel. There had always been a spiritual Israel. Those who were not only a member of the nation, the, spiritual, the physical nation of Israel, but those who were God's spiritual people. And these are the people who obeyed the gospel in Acts chapter 2. They and the proselytes who were also of that mind. And so God has always had his people. He had his people in the patriarchal age. He had his people during the age of Moses. And he has his people now. Now you have to be one of his people through the terms given in the new covenant. In Galatians three sixteen through 18. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It is not saying to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. And uh, I think I did find that passage. Eventually it's in Genesis, but it's not Genesis 17, 7, where he's obviously referring to uh, one person as the offspring. But Genesis 17, 7 certainly seems to be talking about it in, in the plural. But here Paul says in the passage he is referring to, it is singular and it is referring to Christ. He goes on, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, that is after God's promise to Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. God made a promise to Abraham. The law that came in after did not annul that promise. That promise was ratified by God. It was a covenant between God and Abraham, and it involved us if we are people of faith. God later made a covenant with the nation of Israel, but that did not obviate, it did not annul, it did not do away with God's covenant with Abraham. For if the inheritance comes by the law, the inheritance God promised through Abraham, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And so here's the problem among the churches of Galatia. There were these pseudo-Christians, false brethren, Paul calls them in Galatians chapter 2, who had come in privately to spy out their freedom. 
And these Judaizing teachers, as I called them, and others have called them, they were trying to pressure the Gentile converts into uh, converting to uh, the, the Judaism as it existed in the first century by physical circumcision, the men, and uh, law-keeping, men and women, in order to be right with God under the new covenant. And that's what Paul is dealing with in, in the book of Galatians. That's the basic problem. And so he's saying, now, if it comes by covenant, it is no longer by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. In verses 23 through 29, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now there never was a time when anybody was justified by anything other than faith. Hebrews chapter 11, I may mention that here a little bit in the, in the next well, I'm probably going to have half an hour left by the time I get through this one. But uh, I may mention Hebrews 11 a little bit later in the second portion. But you start starts with Abel and goes all the way through the patriarchal age and the, and the Old Testament age to show that people were justified by faith. And it had, now yes, the people who under the law had to keep the law, but they had to keep it by faith in order to be justified. But now that faith has come. Here's talking about faith in Jesus Christ. We are no longer under a guardian, the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, not the law. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's the only way we can get into Christ. Paul tells the Galatians that. He also told the Romans that. Baptized into Christ. I had a fellow tell me one time, well, you know, uh, baptism is just kind of like a uniform. You know, when you go into the military, uh, you take an oath of allegiance and then they give you a uniform. You're already in the military before you put the uniform on. The uniform just signifies that you're in the military. And I agree with that. You're not in your uniform till you put your uniform on. Neither are you in Christ until you put Christ on. And we're told in two places, we're baptized into Christ, and that's when you put Christ on. When you enter into Christ, you put him on, and that occurs in baptism. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male and, or, and female, meaning there's not two Gospels. There's not a Gospel for the Jew and a Gospel for the Greek. There's not a Gospel for the male and a Gospel for the female. There's not a Gospel for the slave and a Gospel for the free. You're all one. Equal in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So it doesn't matter whether we were born uh, of the seed of Abraham. It doesn't matter whether, whether we uh, were from a, a long line of families that were under the law. What matters is whether we have the faith of Abraham or not. Romans chapter 4 says basically the same thing. In Galatians 4, beginning with verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, potentially and provisionally, 
but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. That's what I meant before by trust. Here is something he has in trust. He owns it, but he can't do with it anything he wants to do. He doesn't have possession of it until time set by the trust. And so this is the way it was in the Jewish society. Many people do that even today in their, in their wills. When my son reaches the age of 21, if he's not already 21 at the, age of, at the time of my death, then he'll receive the inheritance. Or some will say, well, he has to be married. He has to have a job. And so other conditions can be placed on that. And whatever conditions are set by the terms of the will, those conditions have to be met. And so the Jews were, yes, they were heirs, but that meant they were not in possession of that which they would inherit. But they were under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, in the same way we also, when we were children, here he's making the application of the Jews, application to the Jews. When we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, the law of Moses. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, seed of woman, back in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, by the way, is the thematic sentence of the Bible. It's not just the thematic sentence of Genesis, though it is. It is the thematic sentence of the Bible. Everything in the Bible relates somehow to Genesis 3.15. Basically, the Bible is a record of God's bringing to fruition that promise to put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between his seed and her seed. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so they were children, they were heirs under the law, but now under the new covenant they were sons. They had reached maturity. They, had, they could receive that which they were heirs of, but if they never came under the New Testament, they were giving up their inheritance. Just like someone who refuses to meet the conditions of his father's will, he'll never receive whatever his father willed to him. The executor of the will is to see to that. And so, no Jew can be saved outside of Christ. Got to be baptized into Christ, just as Gentiles do. And because you are sons, these Jews and Gentiles of Galatia, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, the heirs, as he pointed out in in verses 1 and 2 there, the heirs were no better than the slaves because they were under guardians. But now, all those who come into Christ are sons and no longer slaves, no longer under that guardian. Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He's talking particularly to the Judaizing teachers here and to those who were so far being influenced by them. Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Hagar being the slave woman, Sarah being the free woman. But the son of the slave 
Ishmael was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman, Isaac, was born through promise. When God said, you shall have a son, he wasn't talking about Hagar. He was talking about Sarah having a son. They didn't get that. They thought God needed help, and so he lay with Hagar. She had a son by Abraham, Ishmael, born according to the flesh, not according to promise. All right, then he goes on. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. He's not saying that all of that is just an allegory. That is historical. But he's using that historical information as an allegory. He said, all right, let's see what we can learn from this. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, Hagar and Sarah. One, Hagar, is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. He points that out. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem. That's all the, the Jews and Judaizers wanted. They wanted Jerusalem to be the seat of power uh, in, a, in a geopolitical kingdom to reign over all the earth. That's all, the, all they could see. They couldn't grasp anything greater than that. For she is in, in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, that's Sarah, is free and she is our mother. So the old covenant from Sinai represented by Hagar and the new covenant from heaven represented, represented by Sarah as we make this allegorical uh, comparison here. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren who does not bear children. Break forth and cry aloud, and you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. In other words, the physical offspring of Abraham will not outnumber the spiritual offspring of Abraham through Sarah because the physical offspring are according to the flesh. The spiritual offspring are according to the promise. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now there's a record of that. Uh, Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. And this is why, uh, Sarah said, tell uh, Hagar she's got to go and take Ishmael with her. And he told her to go. And, but God provided for her and for her, for her children. And that's what's happening here in, in the, among the churches of Galatia. Those who wanted the church to be nothing more than a Jewish sect were persecuting those who were satisfied with faith in Jesus Christ as revealed in the New Covenant. So it also is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. What's the point? You need to cast out these Judaizing teachers and those who are allowing themselves to be fully influenced by them and not have anything to do with them. If they're not willing to accept Jesus Christ and come fully under the new covenant, 
trusting in Jesus alone, no longer trusting in Moses and the law, which Jesus had nailed to the cross, then they would be lost. Because the bondwoman is going to be cast out with their children. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So they were to get rid of these Judaizing teachers and, and not allow them to have any more influence over the people. Now, what can we get out of this? Well, certainly the law was good. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. It was a, it was a good thing. And except for the Sabbath law, all the Ten Commandments, nine of the Ten Commandments are in the New Testament in one form or another. So, you know, nobody's saying, really, that you don't have to abide by the, any of the Ten Commandments. No, they're all incorporated in the New Covenant except for the Sabbath day observance. The Sabbath day was replaced by the first day of the week, not as a day of rest, but a day of special worship to God in honor of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the day of resurrection in the way in which God, through Jesus Christ, has designated, which we did this morning. Eat this bread, drink this cup, in remembrance of him that is a, it is a memorial meal, it is a covenant meal. And there are many other ways that it could be described. And while we certainly need to learn the Old Testament, we cannot afford to judge others or allow others to judge us by the Old Testament alone. But teach, preach, practice, and make our judgments in accordance with the new covenant of God through Jesus Christ. One day you'll stand before the throne, all of us will. And we will have to give an account of what we've done on the earth. We'll give an account, we'll be judged by our thoughts, our words, and our actions. If you need to make your heart right with God in any manner at all, in a public way, we'd encourage you to come while we stand and sing. You shall stand before